Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is the 19th of December, 2019. I'm one of your hosts, Byron Pace. I'm recording this intro from the States this week, and so my brother is back in Scotland. Incidentally, it was his birthday last week, so happy birthday, Daryl. This is the last show of 2019, and so we have something a little different for you. Our first in an upcoming series of notes from the field where we venture out on location to discuss new and exciting work in conservation. To kick it off, I thought we'd start with someone that we've had on the show before, and I travelled up to the north of Scotland to meet up with fisheries biologist and director of the Nest District Salmon Fisheries Board, Chris Conroy, where I got to learn all about river restoration and Atlantic salmon. But before we get into that, I need to give a shout out to our Patreons and a special end of year thank you, I think, to everyone who has supported our top tier Patreons this week are Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, the guys at South Esher Stalking, James Benjamin Normandale, and finally, uh, but absolutely not least, James Marchington. We don't have a winner from the competition we ran two weeks ago because nobody managed to get the right answer. We had lots of people identifying that the sound was a bird. Uh, we even had some people managing to work out that that sound came from an owl. So what we're going to do is I'm going to roll that sound over to this week and we will carry it on. Now that you've got the extra information that you're looking at the sound of an owl, what I want to know is what type of owl does this sound come from? Uh, as we do with every show over the last few months, we will pick a winner at random out of the correct entries, and you will win a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, who are, of course, our partners on this podcast and have been for a long time now. I'm looking forward to meeting up with Editor-in-Chief Tyler Sharp in only a few weeks now at Dallas Safari Club. So if anybody is going to be at Dallas Safari Club, let me know, and uh, maybe we can grab a beer. Volume 4 is of course out and shipping, so if you place an order it will ship within a day or two of uh, us receiving it. There might just be time to squeeze it in before Christmas, so hurry up and get your order in. Uh, all the feedback from Volume 4 has just blown us away. Uh, keep an eye out on Modern Huntsman Instagram in particular if you want to see what other people have been saying about Volume 4, The Women's Issue. And if you haven't ordered it, it makes the perfect Christmas present, uh, but it's also a very, very good gift for yourself. And uh, even if you don't do Christmas, you need to have this in your library. Uh, if you like this podcast, it is essential reading. So anyway, uh, without any further delay, I will let you listen to the same sound that we played two weeks ago. Make sure you get your entries in, and I hope somebody gets it right. 
After this show, we'll be back on the 9th of January. So from both of us, we hope that you have a great festive period. Thank you so much for your support over 2019. If you like this truncated, more highly edited show from the field, do let us know. We won't be stopping our long-form interviews, but we would like to do a few more of these kind of shows in between times. Well, I won't hold you up anymore. We're going to jump straight into it now. Grading fish at the hatchery. PC00613-9D6. Did you say it's a hen fish, did you say? Yes. Is it mature? Yes. That's a perfect fish because it's a hen, produces eggs, it's got no siblings, um, so we can cross it with basically any within that group. So that's a, that's a perfect fish, that one, really. Chris, welcome to my office, in my car, in the rain in a forest somewhere towards the west of Scotland. Uh, yep. I've just joined you for the morning working on a fascinating project. Give me a little bit of the background. I've, I've seen what's going on in there with the salmon and you were explaining all the genetic sampling, but what is it in aid of? Tell me about the river system and why, why you're undertaking this project. Right, so this is the Upper Gary Salmon Restoration Project. And we have a, a population of fish in the upper Gary. This is the Inverness Shigari, not the Perth Shigari. It's in a really bad condition at the moment. So you've got basically um, a number of impact factors on that population. You've got the sort of general decline we're seeing in salmon. But across you've, the board. Across the board, yeah. But on top of that, you've got issues related to hydro. There's, there's a, a, a lot of large-scale hydro on the system. Um, you've got issues from aquaculture up there. And you've also got previous poor management, to be honest with you, by the fishery board as well over in the past. And so what you've got is a population that's gone from 900 fish swimming through the fish counter into the upper Gary system to last year, just 27. So wow. a massive, massive decline. So almost functionally extinct. Um, getting there. It's, it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's in a really bad state. So as I said, there's a lot of impact factors there from a lot of different organisations. And what we've done is rather than sit and point the finger at each other in, in a room, we've all got together and we're all contributing to this project to try and... Because um, there's a lot of funders to make this happen. Th there is, yeah. And SSE are the main funders here. SSE have been really good. They're really keen to improve the situation up there. Uh, and they've brought, they basically brought us all together in the, in the room. We're all working together to try and kickstart a self-sustaining population again up there. And, and what was the, the first step in that, that that took you down the line that I've been witnessing today? Yeah, so the first step was, I think it was back in, it was either 2004, 2006, before my time here, um, was to try and improve uh, access to the system. So there's always been adult access through the dam. There's a fish lift, ball and fish lift in there. So that, that works pretty effectively but further up there was what they call a heck which is a fish trap and when they put the hydro in in the, in the 1950s they decided to place this heck in a location where it actually cut off one of the main spawning tributaries it wasn't really well thought out at the time and fish had, had basically for six, 60 over 60 years couldn't get up past there wow. so in, in 2004 or 6 i can't remember exactly which one it was they took the screens out of the heck and let the fish go through naturally and there was an improvement but only a slight improvement and if you compare it to the neighbouring River Morriston, where you've got um, a similar situation, the Morriston population has been gradually improving for the last 30 years, whereas the Gary has just continued to decline. So we thought there might be a little bit more to it. And then I identified this issue with potential integration, um, whether it be from escapes from the, um, the farm, the smolt rearing facility that's there, or whether it be from previous mismanagement where fishery boards 
in the past did used to put um, Fisher Farm stock in um, to supplement the wild stock. And at the time, they thought they were doing a good thing. Uh, they did, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so it, it's, it's important that we're you know we're open and honest about this kind yeah. of thing. You have got to learn from from mistakes learn from in the past. Mistakes, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah. So we there's there's issues there with integration. So you basically you've got inbreeding and you've got um, non-native strains in there as well, and then you've got hydro dams and you've got loss of habitat so the hab habitat's very fragmented so you don't tend to get spawning you don't get very often where you get spawning habitat and par habitat for example so together and if the numbers are low the fish aren't meeting each other simple as that the fish are not are not finding each other so now we have an overview of the problem the question is what is being done to help the river system recover well it starts here in a series of tanks filled with fish in the middle of a forest Chris explains. You'll see the smaller than they would be if the, the fish are smaller than they would be if they're grown in the sea. But these are actually doing really quite well size-wise. They don't look that much like salmon. They look they're more spotty, and I yeah. think it's to do with the, the the diet and the fact they're being brought on in fresh water. But they are most definitely salmon because we've genetically profiled <laughs> I, them. I believe you. Yeah, we always do get worried because you do doubt yourself sometimes, and you think, you know, to, if we'd got it wrong, it, we would be found out basically. <laughs> so. so. You so think, so what, that's the process now. You're going to drain this and so, then scoop them out and take them next. So they, they drain the tank, they anaesthetize them just to relax them. So we, the whole idea here is you don't you want to keep stress down. So you you don't want um, fungus associated with stress. John is an expert at handling these fish, so he uh, anaesthetizes them, calms them down, and then we go through the handling process, which is we the min, handling is minimum. We don't we don't want to handle them too much. You don't but want your do, hands literally on them. But we do, we, well, they will touch them, but wet hands, et cetera, yep. but we need to minimize that. I mean, it's, it's essential that we know what we're doing. I and mean, some hatcheries wouldn't go to this detail, but it's, for us, it's really important that we do this properly in terms of we need to know what fish is which. The Upper River Gary project is led by Chris, but the Drim Sally hatchery itself is run and operated by John Gibb. He explains the operation and how it started. So we've got a variety of projects that go on here. It's about 20 years old, this hatchery, and over the years we built it up, largely through assistance from the aquaculture sector, uh, working together. We've now got a, a pretty developed wild restocking hatchery here, as well as a live gene bank. So what I mean by that is we've got various strategies for um, the restoration of rivers using um, artificial rearing. Uh, but we've also got stocks in here from um, individual rivers. So there's several rivers in here. They each have their own tank. They're each tagged in their own individual way. And um, what you've got is actually, even if you never use those fish, you've got almost like an insurance policy. So if something against, was to happen to yeah, those rivers. some sort of environmental disaster or, you know, um, there was issues with uh, Gyrodactylus solaris, a particularly nasty uh, fish disease in Norway. Uh, where they had to poison rivers um, and then restock them. So we're covered against that kind of thing uh, by having the, 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 the indigenous fish in here. So we do lots of different strategies. Um, over the years, they've changed as uh, scientific knowledge about the impacts of stocking have changed and developed. And these days, I mean, much of what you saw today with the Gary fish, this is... Um, a strategy that we're using more and more on other rivers. Uh, we've been developing it over uh, maybe about 12 years now. So this idea of instead of removing your adult fish from a river, your adult salmon to use as broodstock, what you do, um, as as you uh, probably saw, is, is you trap the smolts going to sea. I like to think of them as um, 
the doomed majority because we know that 95%, maybe even 98% of those fish are going to die at sea. So it's almost like a wasted genetic material. So we bring them into the hatchery and we grow them onto adult fish. Now, the advantage of that is, is quite a number of things. But one is um, we're not taking adult fish from the river because they're incredibly precious these days. And they're spawning anyway. In the river. And they're spawning anyway, exactly. So we would much prefer just to leave them to get on with it. But by taking the smolt is we can actually, as I say, utilize fish that would die at sea anyway. Um, and of course, everything is, as, as Chris has explained, uh, genetically screened different subgroups within a population. We weed out any farmed fish because this is a um, significant issue. Um, where you get aquaculture, you get escapes. And this can... Why, why is that a big problem, having the farmed fish infiltrating the population? Sure. So so it's been demonstrated through pretty robust science now that um, infiltration of non-indigenous genetic material into your population can have a deleterious effect uh, in that... Um, uh, individual populations have evolved over you know thousands of years to adapt to their particular river so for example um, when you look at fish from a let's say a, a very rocky tumbling type river um, they tend to be quite streamlined because they need that body shape to get up waterfalls and push on into the hills and where you get sort of more lowland type rivers that flow just say through farmland and much more gentle rivers you tend to get uh, much deeper fish. So you take a river like the Wye down in the southwest of England, you'll get a very, very deep, large salmon with a very deep belly. And you take a river in, say, the Scottish West Coast Highlands, they tend to be much more narrow. And this is just a visual example of how um, natural selection But it's work. important for their survival. It's extremely important because you then introduce a, what is actually a Norwegian gene because all our farm fish in cages around here are from Norwegian parents. You introduce that into the stock and it, and, it, and it can have significant effects, negative effects. So this is why they're all screened out during all of our hatchery processes. And this, this is a relatively new thing that, uh, with the hatchery now. Uh, we didn't do before because we didn't have that tool, but we now have genetic tools to be able to do this. So hatchery work in general, I mean, you may be aware there's, there's a lot of um, fairly contentious arguments surrounding hatcheries. And I think one of it was you don't really know what you're crossing with what. Um, you're slightly playing God in the hatchery and you're deciding which fish to cross with which fish. Well, this is getting us closer to what nature would do. In other words, identifying subgroups within the population. So, for example, what we're probably identifying in some of these rivers like the Gary is, let's say, a, a, a sub-tributary of the Gary. We're identifying that through the genetic screening when they come in the hatchery. So we're only crossing that group within that group because that's what we can assume would happen in nature. So we're getting closer to a more natural scenario. The hatchery is never going to be natural, purely natural. But as I say, with the more tools we have at our disposal, the closer we can get to that. You're slowly mitigating the unintended consequences. That's of correct. No, that's absolutely fish. right. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know, this, this whole point of actually not removing wild spawning fish from the wild to do that. DC00. Yeah. 611. 611. C89. C89. Eight, nine. Penfish. So that's a, oh, hold on a sec. Uh, so that's a group three, so that's a green tag. Yeah, so we've got two year classes of fish in the hatchery at the moment. We've got fish that were caught as smolts on the way out of the river in 2017. So they are, they've already been stripped once last year. So they're equivalent to a multi-sea winter salmon, a repeat spawning multi-sea winter salmon. And then we've got the 2018 fish, which 
were caught a smolts in spring 2018. They are equivalent of grills and they've been stripping for the first time today. So what we need to do is find out how many are left alive and how many, uh, which ones are which, because each fish is individually tagged and I, so we can identify it. And then we have a spreadsheet here that links the tag number with the genetic results. So from that we know how big it was when it was caught, when it was caught, um, what group genetic group it's in, and who are its brothers and sisters. And then from that, at the moment we're group, we're putting them in, separating them into groups and identifying them visually. And then when it comes to stripping them, will makes the process a lot easier. Seems like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Intuitively, one of the essential ID points for this is to know whether the fish is male or female. John shows me the visual cues to look oh, okay. for. So we're looking at the difference between cockfish and henfish. And there's an example of a cockfish. You can see in the, the pointed snout there. And this is the kite, the hook here, that the cockfish gets. And also on the belly here, there's a tightness and a flatness to it. And it doesn't have an extended vent here. So that's the cockfish. By contrast, let's try and find a henfish. So this is a henfish, the rounded snout here, no kite and extended vent and you can see here much more um, rounded bellies this is obviously where the eggs are maturing sure this is how we tell it, it looks more feminine looks more <laughs> feminine so what what process am i about to see here Chris? so what you, what they're going to do is they're draining the, the fish at the moment are held outside in our big outside tanks they're draining the tanks down and they'll bring each fish in one at a time and they'll put them on the workstation here and we've got this is a a pit tag decoder so you rub that rub that over the fish and it comes up with a code like on here okay so yeah, and then it's on the screen chris will read the code out to me i'll do a search on this spreadsheet and that'll tell me which fish it is and um, john will look at the fish look at the condition see whether it's mature or not whether it's going to be strippable this year look at what sex it is so we know how many males and females we've got and then he's going to put an external tag on it. So um, it means if it loses its pit tag during the stripping process, we can still know which, which, which fish it is. Um, and then that fish will be put into one of the tanks. I don't think any of these fish will be ready to strip today. It's more of a sorting process, you know. So at the end of the day, we'll know how many fish we've got and how many of each sex and, um, and how many in each group. So the idea of this project is to kickstart it, pump prime it, give them a helping hand with the right genetic stock, to try and boost the numbers to a point where they start recovering, um, and that—that's the whole aim of it. So, yeah. so, you, so you're bringing the, this uh, these hatchery reared fish online, yeah. putting them back into the river system. They came from the river system, yeah. and then eventually you extract yourself and let the natural let cycle get, take yeah. over. So it's called a time limited intervention. So, um, um, because adult numbers are so low, the usual way to run a hatchery is to take adult fish on the way up and at spawning time. But given there's only 27, they're doing it right. We wanted to leave them to get on with the job themselves. We don't want to mess with those fish. So instead, we've been taking smolts on the way out. So they're two to three-year-old juveniles on the way to sea. And the benefit of that is most of those will not make it back. I think the current survival rate is about two to five percent. So by taking those fish, you're not actually having an impact because you're taking fish that wouldn't have survived anyway. And we only take a very, very small proportion of what? leaves the river and um, but your survival rate once you take them is much higher it's much higher yeah so we're, um, and we are um we're taking those smolts and then we're growing them on to adults so they're not going back in themselves but their offspring are so and then we're also we're stocking eggs 
So we're, although we're, we're in a hatchery today, we're not actually hatching anything where the hatching goes on in the river, which means the fish are more streetwise. The first bite of food they have is wild and so they're fitter and stronger so that's fascinating yeah i saw the pictures of you doing it um earlier this year <laughs> give us the spec of that one by one they process and recorded each fish from the tanks outside chris explains just how much information is gathered in order to do this successfully in this, so in the first year they grow they don't get as big as they might do and um, the average size is, is much smaller as you can see so they produce less eggs and they the eggs are a kind of a low, bit of a lower quality as well. So um, you're still using the eggs, are you? Yeah. So in some in some in other um, programs where they've done this in other countries, they've not used the first years of eggs. But we're not we don't want to waste any, so we're we're using them anyway. And then the second year is when you get more eggs, higher quality, and we'll probably get about 150,000 eggs in total, which is on the scheme of things isn't a huge number, but it's enough from the results of our surveys this year. They're definitely taking, and we're seeing a significant increase in both fry and par in the stocking reaches so but yeah so this is a process it takes a bit longer doing it in fresh water but it, it's uh, it's a lot of a safer way to do it so i better get on yep. get ready to do this anyway so dc zero zero six four three four e two so that's a group four but if you look for a for an overall impact, it would be marine survival. Marine survival is what is is uh, limiting the population size of salmon at the moment. Um, obviously, there's there's local factors as well. There's hydros in some places. There's yeah. There's Chris explained that with the Gary as a yeah exactly. So the Gary example. Being, yeah, exactly. But I mean, in general, you're you're we, we in some places, and I should stress, it's only some places. Hatcheries are not an appropriate response for probably the majority of Scottish rivers, to be honest with you. But there are there are places where it's a it's a it's a it's a sensible management response. Alongside, you've got to make sure your habitat's in good condition. But if you've got your habitat in good condition, the habitat is accessible as it can be. And you know that, you know, smolts are able to go to sea without any undue predation on them, for example. If you've got all that in place and still you're not getting enough adult salmon back to repopulate the habitat with juvenile fish, then you're probably getting closer to a scenario where a hatchery is, is part of a suite of responses that you would sense. consider. It starts to make sense, 18. yeah. Um, it was 133 millimetres long, which is an well, slightly bigger than average, and it was two, two plus years old, so we know... Got a lot of information on every fish. Here we go. So. Hen fish. Hen fish. Yeah. That's a sign of inbreeding depression there. They've got loads. So this one here had two brothers and sisters within the same sample. So um, these are probably the upper Gary, a proper upper yeah, Gary population. As a result, of not. There's not enough. Not enough fish there. Yeah. As we go through the fish, it becomes clear just how important the genetic sampling is. We'll have a think about it later, yeah. So this is a fish that um, either there wasn't enough genetic sample or it was a, a bad genetic sample, so we didn't know, we can't get the genetic profile from it. So because we're, it's a major part of this is we, we are profiling them all. If we don't know what it is, it could be a farm fish, so we can't use it, basically. Yeah. One of the things I was curious to find out was how the salmon fare being reared in fresh water, when in their natural cycle, they will migrate to the sea. Yes, yeah, so they do, they do go to sea, but they don't have to go to sea. So um, the difference, so basically, their natural instinct is to go to sea, and the offspring of these fish will go to sea, but if they can't, they don't. And you do get landlocked populations of salmon in the wild as well. 
And what, we haven't in the UK. Not in the UK, no. But there are places in Norway and other and Canada and places like that. Newfoundland, I think. The only difference is it is um, these fish won't grow as quick because the food source isn't quite as rich. So that's why they're smaller. It's just when they're out at sea, they're packing um, food on prawns and other fish, and they're really packing the weight on. So. Um, they've got, they're getting the right nutrients, we've got a particular diet we feed them, so they are getting the correct nutrients, but it's difficult for them to, to build the mass that they would get at sea. So people often ask us, you know, if we grow them in fresh water, will their, will their juveniles stay in fresh water? But no, that's not the case, they will still migrate. Yeah. That, that's built into their, their DNA. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So. A lot of people have assume that the hatcheries are exactly that you, you stick some fish in a tank and you sort of you know go off and do something else we're full-time on this and um we've been involved and uh, in several projects that have started out with extremely keen and well-meaning uh groups of people usually angling groups uh that want to see their river recovered they start a hatchery and halfway in they realize that um Actually, there's a lot more work and dedication than, than they imagined. And sadly, a lot of them have actually lost their fish through it. So what we're finding now is we have um, we do several rivers out of here. And it's our client rivers tend to be groups that have recognized that fact, recognized that what we have here is fully alarmed water systems. And you can see the rain coming down here today. You know, our intake uh, burn will be shooting up. There'll be leaves piling down. We've got alarms and all of this, so you know we lessen the risk. Um, but that's just one example. We're, we're 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can't disappear from here. You cannot disappear. Otherwise, the risk is very high. That's right. That's right. And you can't get any insurance. No insurance company <laughs> would go near you. So you've really got to. You've you got to do your insurance. You, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it takes. I mean, I'm very, very lucky here. I've got very dedicated staff that go well beyond the call of the call of duty to to keep this place running. I'm yeah, extremely lucky and very Is grateful to them. That was caught on the 15th of April 2018. That was 122 millimetres, which is pretty much average size. Uh, and it was three years old. Cockfish, DC00, 643, 4E2. Yeah, some people, you know, criticize biology and science in fisheries management but you know this is where it comes in as well we've got this spreadsheet here we've got all this information there's a whole load of science behind it and it's we've got a real practical management application it's not science for science sake it's it's evidence-based it's informing the actual management work and it has a specific output and that's the way we like to work uh, evidence-based management and we don't do any science unless it's got a practical management application you know and it's important people understand that because you you know if you're going to do something you need to robustly assess it have all the evidence available and do it properly you know yeah. what would be the the flip side of this project without the science that just sort of the the more grunt force manhandling of trying to do a good thing but without the knowledge that you've managed to gain what, what would be the output of that well firstly we wouldn't be allowed to do it if, if we did it that way um uh, and secondly, you know, you, you, you have the potential to reduce the fitness of the population. And when, when you've got a population like this, you saw the group four, they are likely to be the upper Gary population. They've got multiple siblings. They're obviously depressed in what we call inbreeding depression, where the numbers are so low, they're interbreeding. Um, you could make that worse. So what we're, the way we're doing this, we're actually going to lessen the impact because we're going to make sure they don't inbreed with the, with siblings. So, um, so yeah, it's just, we should, uh, as a result of doing it this way, have a fitter 
product at the end of it the, the wild fish at the end of it should, should be um, fitter and fitter as in more robust more able to to survive to fit to the actual system and to um, survive climate change and things like that you know the fitter the fish is the more chances it's got surviving in the long run. Because a lot these fish in different river systems have adapted to those river systems and to be able to survive. So exactly. move, moving populations from one river system to another, not only could it be massively detrimental, they also won't survive as well as fish that have adapted. Exactly, and even on here, this is one river system with four distinct populations within it. Um, so not only do you get different populations in river systems, between river systems, you get different populations in river systems. So these four groups are genetically distinct from each other. And I can show you, a, I've got um, a family tree that the geneticists have produced for us, which will demonstrate it. And some of them are very, very different genetically. So what we're doing is we're making sure we only cross the fish within those groups. So some people would say, you should mix them, but if you mix them, you lose those genetic... Um, the, the, the traits the, that make the specific. specific traits, yeah. So we're crossing within those groups as well. So um, but if we weren't doing this work, we wouldn't know what we were crossing. We could be crossing brothers, sisters. Um, we could be crossing different groups. We, wouldn't, we just wouldn't know, you know. Um, so quite an eye-opener doing it this way, actually. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see it in this level of detail. It's more work, but it's worth it. As I discovered throughout the morning, this project wasn't just about putting fish eggs back in the river. There was also an important missing link in the natural cycle, as Chris explained to me. Yeah, so the adult fish, we only strip them, we only take the eggs or milt from them uh, twice. And there's a number of reasons for that. But the main reasons are, A, we want to continue to, we don't, we want to continue to have good genetics. We don't want to keep using the same fish. And B, once they've been stripped once, it gets harder and harder to strip the fish each time you do it because the the body cavity builds up and and it and it's not right to to put the fish through it too many times. So we we've decided twice. The reason we do it twice is because in the first year, if the fish are grown in fresh water, they're quite small. So and the eggs are smaller. So second year, the eggs are better quality. So rather than just basically throw those fish away, um, they're, they're humanely dispatched at the end of the process. We freeze them and then when we put the eggs out, we take the carcasses up with us and we dig them into the bed of the river around where we've put the eggs in. And so as they decompose, they increase the nutrient levels. So in the past, there would have been, you know, the, not all Atlantic salmon die after spawning, but a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. And so you would have had it's to not shoot. not like Pacific, which not like Pacific. Die, yeah. No, no, it's... it's but it's, there is a proportion which die off. There and, is a proportion. And if you don't have them running the river, you don't have the nutrients going back into the river. And those marine nutrients, I mean, people, everyone knows Pacific. They've taught you the, the stories about, you know, the salmon feeding the trees. and yeah. the, But it is important here as well. And people don't, it's only recently people have really started thinking about that. Mm. Um, so and in the upper reaches of these rivers, there's not much there. No, and and the, and the upper, ga- the Kingi, where we put in a lot of these fishing, is, I mean, it would have been forested naturally. There's no forest, there's no there's very little vi- riparian vegetation, and now you're losing this wild salmon input as well. So, so the idea is we put that in and we give them a, a chance again. We're just trying to improve the chances of surviving, basically. So, of course, the big question is. Will it work? And are there any early indications? So this is a long-term project. This before we really know it's working, it could be twenty years. So this is a long. There's a long-term investment in this. But what we can say is, we've stocked eggs for two years, and they are. We're getting good numbers of fry and good numbers of par now as well in the second year. So that's the one-year-old fish and the and the two-year-old fish, and we are now getting densities higher than we've ever recorded in the Gary because we've got a long-term data set. And it's really important if you do a project like this, you have to monitor before you do it, during and after. 
to make sure it's working because if it's not working you don't do it you know and so people can learn from it as well so we are seeing so for example one of the sites we do um it's a small burn in the past the highest density of fry was 1.7 per 100 meters squared um, which is basically one fish and that was it had been surveyed five times and we only ever got one okay so this fry. wasn't an anomaly well, yeah um and historically, it would have had fish. Now we're getting, uh, this year, I think we've got up to 27 fry per 100 meters squared. It's a massive improvement. And we, it's, not, it's not a huge density no, compared to other areas, but, but it's really good. Yeah. And we also got par for the first time ever in there. So we got, I think it was like 10 par per 100 meters squared. Anything over about 15, we would class as excellent par per 100 meters squared. It's not like the densities we get in the nest where we get, we get up to 400 fry per 100 meters squared in the river nest, but you wouldn't expect that in an upper system anyway, you yeah, know, because it's, it's a different environment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, that's, we're getting encouraging results is what we would that's say. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Chris. And I'm yeah. intriguing to see the process and I'm looking forward to coming out with you in early part next year. Excellent. Yep. Thank you very much for listening to the show. We both hope that you have a fantastic festive period and can join us again at the start of 2020 on the 9th of January for our first podcast of the year.